Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at the Madison Center. A note before we begin our show. This episode coincides with the 155th anniversary of Juneteenth. On June 19, 1865, Black communities in Texas finally received the news that they were no longer enslaved. That was two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and 246 years after the first Africans, who did not have any legal protections or status, were forcibly brought to the shores of what is now known as Virginia. Juneteenth honors this day and is a centuries-long tradition honoring Black resilience, Black resistance, and the ongoing fight for Black liberation in the United States. Arts are a powerful means to reach and transform society by encouraging social change, fostering agency, deepening commitments to justice, and informing the larger society about social issues. The arts are also a means of inventing and retelling stories and fostering conversations within and outside of social movements. The arts communicate emotions, enact movement goals, and inform the ideals and values both within and outside of social movements. They also give us aesthetic joy. In this episode, we will hear music, spoken word, poetry, and discussion about the role of arts as a means for education, agency, and expression of anti-racism and racial equity. The presenters you will hear in order of appearance include Anastasia Wheeler. She is a communications major who will be graduating next year and is also the immediate past president of Women of Color. Dr. Lauren K. Elaine, who is Associate Director of the Furious Flower Poetry Center and Assistant Professor of English at James Madison University. Dr. Adaranke Adesanya, who is Associate Professor of Art History in the JMU School of Art Design and Art History. Dr. David Berry, who is from our sister institution, Eastern Mennonite University, and Chair of the Music Department there. Next, you'll hear from Dr. Maureen Shanahan, who is the Art History Area Coordinator and Professor of Art History at JMU. And then finally, we'll hear from Dr. Joanne Gavin, who is Executive Director of the Furious Flower Poetry Center. Enjoy this episode. Every single time I've been in theater and done anything in that realm, I've always made it a point to advocate for the stories of Black people in those spaces and making sure that we're performing our stories and letting people know that we're here, we're here to stay, and that we have something to say. So um, today I'll be sharing with you a poem I wrote three years ago um, during my first semester at JMU. Um, for one of my writing classes, I had to do a genre and I picked slam poetry because I love poetry. Um, And this particular poem um, highlights my experience as a black woman in America for the past 21 years. Um, And this is just kind of an example or a story um, that I would like to tell you all. So here's my poem, it's called Sorry But. Sorry But, my mom says that I can't date brown girls rejected at four years old as I thrust my pint-sized body onto the king-sized bed. My tears flood the the room like the flow of the Nile. My heart shattered into a billion pieces because for the first time in my life, I realized that I was different, that I was unwanted, that I was blown by the fact that my skin color signaled blank in someone's mind. That despite the love that praised its existence for centuries prior, a scornful remark left the deepest scar. 
This instance of dismissal was the first of many sorry buts, but I take them like a daily dose of disappointment. Sorry, but we don't have your size. Sorry, but you talk too white. Sorry, but only a man can do this. Sorry, but I don't date black girls. I always wondered why people apologize for their ignorance. As if slaughtering innocent men isn't justified in their eyes. As if European beauty standards don't pollute a black girl's mind. As if getting pulled over for an invisible act of crime isn't remediated by the lifesaver of appearing to act white. Dear four-year-old white boy, don't apologize for your conditioning. If anything, I feel sorry for you because the excellence of my people must be so crippling. To the minds of your parents who have taught you to hate the color of my skin, well, sorry, but I will never hate the way my melanin glistens in the sunlight, how the curves of my body insult your veiled eyesight, how the coils of my hair possess the strength of a thousand slaves, how the very lips that you demonize are the same ones that you crave. The next time a man approaches you with, sorry, but I don't date black girls, say sorry, but that's bullshit. So um, yes, that poem I wrote, um, it details an experience that I had um, when I was four years old, when, you know, we're just children and, you know, you're playing house with your friends. And um, I ran, went up to a boy and I told him I liked him. And he told me at four years old that he didn't date brown girls. And mind you, we were kids. So like that really didn't make sense to me. And that is the first moment I realized that I was different. That was the moment that, you know, um, WB Du Bois always talked about, talks about a loss of innocence that, you know, Black people face um, when you're children, because you have that moment of realization that you are Black, that you are different from everybody else. And that was my moment. So um, I just wanted to highlight that. And yeah, so that was my poem. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Anastasia. That was wonderful. And we appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, next up, we have Dr. Lauren K. Elaine. She is a renowned poet and also direct, assistant director at the Furious Flower Poetry Center and assistant professor of English at James Madison University. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And thank you so much for being a dear friend and colleague. Thank you so much, Kara. Um, thank you for the invitation to participate tonight. Um, I want to open by saying, like, thank you for acknowledging the role of the arts and, um, you know, Black interiority matters, um, Black artistry matters. And I think that one of the, the you know, I wrestle with being a, a poet in these times. Like, what if, you know, I should have I should have been a doctor or a lawyer. I could do something. Um, but, it, you know, often I'm reminded that what poetry can do is reclaim language. Right, and that so much of the language used to describe Black folks, the thugs, the looters, the rioters, <laughs> um, that it, it seeks to dehumanize us, to take away our personhood. And what I try to do in my poems is to, to re-inflect us with our humanity, to give us back what society and, you know, racist supremacist, white supremacist language tries to, um, to take away from us. I'm read a few poems from a few different places, um, all of, with all of them with that in mind. I'm actually going to open with this poem that's really new and <laughs> really old at the same time. It's a poem I haven't even published anywhere, but um, I've been going back to it a lot recently because when Trayvon Martin was killed, 
it was for me, uh, and I think for many folks living in the United States, uh, definitely a watershed moment. But there was something about that story that really haunted me. And um, I'm a slow writer. So it, I, I started this then, and I was tweaking it as late as last week. <laughs> but um, it's for my brother, uh, who you'll hear about in this. And again, that idea of just humanizing. My brother was a dark-skinned boy with a sweet tooth, a smart mouth, and a wicked thirst. At 17, when I left him for America, his voice was static with approaching adulthood. He ate everything in the house, grew what felt like an inch a day, and wore his favorite shirt until mom disappeared it. Tonight, I am grateful he slaked his thirst in another country, far from this place where a black boy's being calls like crosshairs to conscienceless men with guns and conviction. I remember my brother's ashy knees and legs, how many errands he ran on them, up and down roads belonging to no one and everyone. And I'm grateful he was a boy in a country of brown boys in the time of walks to the store on Auntie Marge's corner to buy contraband sweeties and sweet drinks with change snuck from mom's handbag or dad's wallet, how that was a black boy's biggest transgression and so far from fatal, it feels an un-American dream. Tonight, I think of my brother as a black boy's lifeless body spins me into something like prayer, a keening for the boy who went down the road, then went down fighting, then went down dead. My brother was a boy in the time of fist fights he couldn't win and that couldn't stop him slinging his weapon tongue anyway. Was a boy who went down fighting and got back up wearing his black eye like a trophy. My brother who got up, who grew up, who got to keep growing. Tonight, I am mourning the brown boys who are not my brother and who are my brothers. I am mourning the boys who walk the wrong roads, which is any road in America. Tonight, I am mourning the hate, the death warrant hate has made of their skin, black and bursting with such ordinary hungers and thirst, such abundant frailty, such constellations of possibility are boys who might become men if this world spared them, who might be recognized as human if only anyone cared to see. So in the vein of that, at that time, I also wrote this poem, which I, I wrote quite quickly, actually, because, again, I'm, I'm always in this tailspin of, like, what can poets do? And, um, you know, the, the hoodie of Trayvon Martin was such a symbol, um, and I say symbol in the way, too, that um, I think what really ignited me was when I saw that people were making um, Halloween costumes of hoodies and crosshairs, uh, and... You know, I was just like, no, 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 I, I take that back and I'm going to take this caricature and, and use it to rebuild this boy. Um, so this is the hoodie stands witness for Trayvon Martin and it's written in the voice of his hoodie. I was built for bodies like his between boy and man sauntering in angles he couldn't hold, but swung his limbs from, careful, cool in every step. I can tell you the story of him, unexceptional. He put change and candy into my pockets, 
the necessary jangle of keys and cell phone hushed in the soft of me. I watched him from the soft pile he made of me on the floor of his messy adolescent room where I lay beside his sneakers and backpack. He did his homework with chat windows open. White headphones hooked him into some steady beat. That day, he was thinking of nothing in particular. He was quiet in his skin, tucked into the shade of me. He was an easy embrace until an old ancestral fear lay its white shadow across us like an omen. I can tell you his many hairs raised in warning beneath me. His armpits spunked me up with terror. His saunter slipped into a child's unsteady totter under the weight of a history staggering behind him, mad with its own power. He clung to me then, wholly unmanned, a baby clutching his blankie. He pulled me close and I stroked his head, caressed the naps he had brushed the waves that morning. I felt him brace his bones beneath me, his heart a thousand beating drums. The bullet ripped through us like a bolt of metal lightning. His blood losing its purpose ran into me and I wished we were truly a single body that I could have held its rush and flow like a second sweaty skin. I can tell you how his spirit slipped out like steam from cooling water, slowly fading by degrees until he stilled. And so it's crazy to me reading that poem in the wake how many years later of the death of George Floyd, where I don't even have to imagine how his breath leaves him, but that it is made visible for us all to see. And I'm glad, I will say it, to see America erupt into anger and righteous outrage that such a thing should be possible, that such a thing should be condoned, and that, um, that the notion that this man was no one to anyone, that that would happen with impunity, that we would not say, absolutely not, this is not okay. So, you know, I don't know, let it burn. Um, not to leave the women out of the equation, this is a poem for Sandra Annette Bland called Heaven. Where does a black girl go when her body is emptied of her? And her wild voice, where does it sing its story when the knots of history make a grave of her throat? What of her future, blue broken, unmade? Her name, say it, Sandra, unhoused. Her dreams and memories lost to their source. Where does a black girl's love go? When her heart is snapped shut like a cell door, the key out of reach as any justice. And what gift is lost when a black girl is made a body, her light dimmed into shadow, gone? How many angels weep when a black girl is torn into wings? So I'll need two more. Um, this is a poem I haven't actually read a whole lot. Um, but again, that notion of, for me, I'm a poet that records the losses. 
of of us because we are not indispensable bodies and our lives do matter and they matter before they become corpses. Um, and, you know, we are loved people. Um, and this is a poem for, a, you know, that sort of takes place in a different context, but it's how to watch your son die because I feel like for so many people, that's sort of what we witnessed, right? Um, and there's an epigraph from Rachel McGibbons, who's a wonderful poet. And it says, when grief takes hold, you monster through it, which is just, I love that epigraph. Watch his skin become a coffin for his breath. Watch his bones rise like phantoms to haunt the twilight of his flesh. Beneath the bedsheet of his lids, see his eyes twitch, blind and wandering. If opened, they are the most beautiful glass. He will unremember time and laughter. His name will become a strange music in the foreign instrument of your voice. Watch him lose each human border, his tongue forsaking language, his hands going indifferent to reach or touch, his heart sputtering its final messages to yours. Watch as he breaks from himself and becomes a body so quietly, your tears thunder against his cheek. Um, and I'm going to close with uh, a poem that honors the victims of the Charleston shooting. And part of what I think this conversation is, is again, that it is possible to police differently. We know this because shooters like Dylan Roof make it out alive after having committed the most atrocious crimes. But the problem is, if you don't think it's that atrocious, right? And it also changes when you watch a policeman who can't even be bothered to break a sweat, like shoot someone in the back. Unlike all the TV police, he's not going to run after them. He's just going to shoot because that stops, that solves his problem. And again, I just feel like part of what language can do is enter the interior of folks that we don't see um, as having interiors. And that idea of anti-racism, I think part of what that work does is to make everybody a person. And um, agency, again, is also acknowledging subjectivity and humanity and interiority. So this poem uh, that I'll close with is Grace, a Lamentation for the Victims of the Charleston Shootings, for Cynthia, for Susie, for Ethel, for Clementa, for Daniel, for Sharonda, for Myra, for Tawanza, for the pain. And I'm going to also dedicate it, of course, to all the most recent victims and all of the victims. We only ever wanted grace. We wanted the ache in our joints to let up. We wanted a little extra in the bank. We wanted to retire, get married, travel. We wanted dinner hot and home cooked. We wanted a break from the kids. We wanted to get home to the kids. We wanted to make someone listen for once to our side of an argument. We wanted to write policy and poems, cross a stage dressed in our full names. We wanted to see the great grands grow into themselves, make sure that last grown child finds her way. We wanted to be where we were. We wanted to be anywhere else. 
We wanted to give the weird white boy a place to rest his obvious angst. We wanted him to go on his way and felt bad about it. We wanted, after all, to do right, like the good book says, to love the neighbor and the stranger, the greatest and least. We wanted only the grace of our good, God-given lives. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us this evening. Um, I would like to next um, introduce Dr. Adaronke Adesanya, who is a professor of art history at James Madison University. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm going to start by saying that um, apart from being an art professor, I, I actually spent um, um, over a decade uh, doing cartoons in Nigeria. You know, I had street cartoons that uh, uh, touches on various issues, uh, uh, gender, politics, and what have you. Uh, and I sort of, you know, worked for different times. But the longest tabloid I worked for was uh, the Vanguard newspaper. I'm also a poet, but I'm not going to, you know, be sharing anything from from my from my work. So much was said um, by the um, initial speakers, Lauren and um, Anastasia. Um, I write uh, from the perspective of my discipline as, as an artist. I write about the intersection of art and politics, art and identity, art and race, and various issues. And I think, you know, uh, they are central to the way we um, um, think about, you know, art, how art, you know, uh, uh, interfaces with the nation of people. And I'm going to talk um, a little bit about monuments. Monuments are important. And uh, my discussion of monuments will focus more on statues. But before I say that, what do the arts make us do? You know, the art forms, you know, they make us to pause, to reflect, to sort of, you know, um, think about the embodiments, those art forms as embodiments of ideas. You know, what do they bring what kind of pictures do they conjure? What kind of projections do they make? What do they remind us of? And how do we relate to them? You know, and in what ways have their context changed? And if their context have not changed, you know, what um, um, ideas do they perpetuate? And how do they affect the quality? How do they affect people? These are critical issues, you know, that people must think about especially concerning public monuments. And public monuments are actually in the front burner now. And I would say that they are in the, atto- in, in the eye of the storm because people are reacting to them, not only in the US, in the wake of you know, George uh, Floyd's um, death, but also in other spaces of the world. But I must also bring to our mind the fact that the reaction to public monuments um, that are happening now and going, you know, um, uh, in, um, happening in different spaces, they are not new. Actually, you know, from the Asian to the modern, we've seen people reacted, you know, to, to public monuments. 
even in, in the Asian world, you're talking of uh, Mesopotamia, you're talking of Egypt, you're talking of um, Rome particularly. Of course, monuments of leaders have been, you know, descended upon and defaced and destroyed. So it's not new for people uh, to sort of have a rethink. If something had been an embodiment of certain ideas, which were held sacrosanct before, but people realize that, oh no, you know, there are so many very mucky sides to this particular monument. We've got to have a second look at it. I think we've come to um, what has happened to George has sort of, you know, brought us, you know, to, to halt and to pause. We've come to an awakening to think seriously about, you know, the things that we have neglected. Sometimes we are looking, but we're actually not paying attention. We are, we, are, we are hearing voices, you know, but we're not listening. We are not acting on those voices. We are being passive because sometimes, you know, the general populace may not uh, be affected. Uh, certain groups of people are just affected. And because it's not actually, you know, very close to your doorstep, you are not taking action. So we, we should think about, we must come to terms with the reality that, you know, cultural moments come during cultural climates that will affect, you know, how we view certain monuments. And I remember, you know, as I do my um, uh, content for classes, I actually bring um, the issues about how people respond to art and how art affects our day-to-day living, uh, whether in uh, survey classes or in upper-level classes. Three years ago, I had, um, I, I, I told my students in the survey class, you know, that we have a theme that we must work upon. And the title of the theme was Much Ado About Monuments. And this was, you know, much just shortly after Charlottesville, you know, crisis had broken. Charlottesville had happened. And then I wondered the students, you know, as part of their civic engagement, to say, okay, I mean, you are part of this social, you know, orbit. You are part of this society. What are your own take, you know, concerning these monuments? You know, what do you think as um, um, a responsible a member of this society, you know, and um, to also reflect on, you know, what is it to be humane? You know, what is it, you know, to be empathetic? What is it, you know, to think beyond yourself and to think about others? And also what is it, you know, what, what does it take to have power and to use it, you know, responsibly? So I said them to, to work on the, the theme much ado about monuments. There were divergent views, of course. There were divergent views. Some of them, you know, um, talked about heritage, uh, the need to preserve the monuments. You know, some of them talked about hate. Some of them talked about pain. Some of them talked about identity and so many issues. You know. But I allowed everybody to have their say, to have their say. But in the final analysis, um, I think each and every one of the students got to hear the other side, got to hear different people based on their readings and their presentation to, to get a, a, a second look or to, to have a rethink of what they initially had, you know, uh, the, the kind of notions they've had before that time. I'm not saying that I totally changed the perspective of all the students in the classroom, but there were, it was a moment for us to have conversation. A necessary conversation. Um, I'm not sure how much more of those conversations were taken to other spaces, but it was a pivotal moment for me to pass, you know, um, that uh, important education, important instruction, because I have this mindset that a lot of our stories are actually not well um, articulated. They are not well spoken, you know, uh, in the very 
ambience that they needed, you know, to be said. So that that was a, a very very important um, uh, education. But because um, the cancer, the cancer in which you know certain monuments have actually uh, inflicted on the society, you know, has not actually been cured or has not actually been properly addressed. We keep having this, you know. Uh, cyclical, you know, uh, impact because you know it's like it's not going to go away. If you, if you say you want to wish it away, there's a conversation about public monuments that we must have. It has to be had. It's been there for too long, and we must take decisive steps, you know, to actually nip it in the bud. Some of the solutions that some of my students, you know, said was okay. Well, maybe those public monuments, some of them should be put in museums. You know, some people propose that idea. Uh, some said, oh, well, this should simply be brought down. Other people said, okay, why don't you reflect the, the, the whole spectrum of, you know, the episode that those monuments actually um, speak about? What about other figures you know, that were affected during the time of slavery, during the time of um, uh, segregation, during the time that the Confederate you know, soldiers were rampaging all over the place? Why don't you have images of the significant figures that were also there. Why don't you create monuments of them? That's okay, these people stood against various odds, you know, and then their generations have, you know, lived through that and all that, that you celebrate, you know, those uh, essence as well. The people who advocated, you know, for actually putting them in museums have a, a case They say, okay, well, we go to museums to see other monuments of the world. Ancient monuments are there, housed there. If you actually want to create heritage, Simply go there. You you you, you pay. Uh, sometimes you know some of those um, uh, openings you don't have to pay. You just go experience it. If you want to actually enshrine the place, you want to hallow the place. If you want to pray there, go pray to those ancestors, and you get your own feel. And then for those people who don't want to be continuously victimized, continuously traumatized by seeing the people who actually enslaved and destroyed their ancestors dehumanize their ancestors, they don't have to be perpetually exposed to those monuments in the public layer. People made arguments, you know, serious arguments, and you can see from what is going on around the world, in the world, whether in England or in Belgium, or, you know, or even in the United States, you know, people are actually, you know, there's this uprising, there's a, you know, there's a call that you pull down all this monument, even in England, some monuments have been pulled down already, they've been thrown in the river. Uh, the, Austin that was thrown in the, in the river is not the first one that would be thrown in the river. In 1688, the monument of King James II was thrown in the river. And then people say, oh yeah, we should retrieve it, we should retrieve it. They went and retrieved it and melted it down and turned it into something else. So if something actually is not um, for the general well-being of the society, if it's uh, perennially causing conflicts, then people must come to the table and have a conversation and take decisive decision. Postponing, you know, taking those decisions is actually postponing the evil days. Like people sitting on a keg of gunpowder is going to erupt again. So this is a moment for us. The death of George, um, George Floyd is actually a moment, a trigger, a necessary trigger for us to take, you know, pause, reflect, have a conversation and take decisions that will be for the uh, benefit of the society. 
I mean, this this is where I'm going to stop for now. I'm going to, uh, uh, of course, when questions come, I'll be more than willing to cite examples of different artists, you know, that I study and those who actually, you know, either in your face kind of aesthetics, you know, confront, you know, uh, the universe of, uh, or those who subtly through satires, through burlesque, through innuendos and all that, you know, Use soft power, you know, ideas to convey, you know, what needs to be attended to, what needs to be addressed in the society. We, we cannot run away from this. This is a pivotal moment that we must take decision. Thank you so much for giving me this platform. Thank you so very much, Dr. Adesanya. I, I can't imagine um, more perfect words to be said in this moment. Um, we really appreciate you, you sharing those words. Um, so next we have Dr. David Berry, um, and he's joining us from our sister institution here in Harrisonburg, Eastern Mennonite University, where he's chair of the music department. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Berry. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to participate in this forum with these wonderful artists. So thank you so much for facilitating this. Um, it's a rich time. Um, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about what uh, you're getting ready to hear. Um, I am a pianist and um, you're getting ready to hear one of my solo piano arrangements of a spiritual Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Um, I'll just uh, give you a little bit of a history, a little bit of history on that. Um, it's a African-American spiritual. It comes from sort of that pre-Civil War period uh, of slavery um, where uh, people looked to uh, these stories that were in the Bible and saw in them uh, a narrative that matched their own. Um, and in the story of Joshua, uh, the children walk around uh, the city, uh, the, the mighty gates of Jericho, the strong fortress of Jericho. Um, for seven days, and on the seventh day, blow their horns uh, and the walls uh, of this fortress, um, of this system come down. Um, and uh, from the early stages of that uh, song being uh, a part of uh, African-American history during the times of slavery, uh, it carried this double meaning of um, illuminating the theology of the, the story, but also um, serving as a narrative um, uh, of African-American plight against uh, these walls of oppression. Um, and this spiritual has meant something uh, in African-American history uh, from that time forward in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. Uh, there's a great video on YouTube uh, you can find um, of Mahalia Jackson singing this spiritual. She has many versions of it, but there's one um, that's live. She's seen it right before uh, MLK speaks. Uh, he often leaned on, on her voice, uh, her inspiration uh, for strength. Um, and uh, it's a great uh, illustration of how that, that particular spiritual and this particular narrative of these walls falling down um, has stood uh, up and um, sort of served as a catalyst um, for movement um, through many generations. And so this, this is a spiritual I've always loved and I've known since I've been a little boy. Um, and this is sort of my interpretation of um, these walls coming down.
Thank you. I would just talk a little bit about sort of the process. I think um, I find that to be an important part of any any sort of arts discussion for me personally to um, synthesis. I, I just, you know, that that's a, something that's always, um, always comes to mind for me whenever I compose anything. And I think for um, our, our generation now of students, the possibilities of synthesis um, and access are far greater than for any generation before. Um, to experience things um, uh, that you would not normally be accustomed to or have had the opportunity to experience uh, via the internet or, or otherwise. There's all sorts of opportunities that technology affords us. This piece comes out of uh, a synthesis of um, my background. Um, I trained at conservatories as a classical pianist um, and spent many hours in practice rooms on scales uh, and um, things like that to perfect the, the craft of playing the piano, which I still work at. Uh, so that sort of technical ability isn't a limit on expression uh, as much as possible, uh, a communicating idea. But it also comes out of uh, my history um, in the Black Baptist Church uh, and growing up there uh, and learning uh, these songs there um, and that experience of. Uh, of music and of community. Um, it comes from my experience with uh, going with my mom. Uh, she, she was a visual artist um, who created uh, sort of clay dolls of, of all kinds of uh, African-American uh, people. Uh, we'd go to community centers to these art shows, uh, community art shows, and I see a wide array of artists of all kinds. Uh, African-American artists, African dancers, artists of uh, fabric and, and quilt and, and um, uh, clays and all sorts of things, music. Um, my dad uh, taught me the blues uh, that he learned on a farm growing up uh, in the South. And all of those things um, are a synthesis of, uh, you know, and come together to form who I am as an artist. And um, for me, and I think for it, any artist, um, who you are as an artist is a synthesis of your personal background and the experiences you have been afforded. Um, so that's why uh, both of those things are so important for um, allowing um, our younger artists um, to be able to reach their full uh, potential of expression. So. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry, for sharing with us so much talent here tonight. Um, I'm so pleased to introduce my colleague here at JMU from our art department, a professor of art history, Dr. Maureen Shanahan. I do want to acknowledge that we are having some Wi-Fi issues here in Burris Hall tonight, so we apologize for that. It's not been the most beautiful day outside. Um, but certainly enjoying this conversation. So um, apologies for the Wi-Fi issues. Dr. Shanahan, thank you so much for being here with us this evening. 
Thank you very much, Abe, for the invitation. I'm going to share a PowerPoint. Um, this is a, re, a talk that I did um, for the Truth and Ra uh, Racial Justice um, group um, that was formed in Harrisonburg. And uh, so it's a revision of that. So thank you um, again for organizing the panel um, and to all of the wonderful uh, poems and music um, that uh, the, my co-panelists have presented. You'll see that this talk actually builds upon what Dr. Adesanya has um, already spoken about. So George Floyd's murder um, by police on May 25, in the midpoint of the calendar year 2020, the year of our global pandemic, uh, has brought heightened clarity and visibility to systemic and institutional violence in the US and around the globe. So let's be clear. It's the protesters' anger, pain, grief, and persistence that has motivated the changes that are now happening. Um, and the protester, and those are calls for limiting police immunity and expanding accountability, bans on no-knock warrants and um, defunding the police uh, and uh, experiments in democracy um, as we're seeing in Seattle. And those protests that have happened around the US and the globe have made Mr. Floyd an icon um, whose murder can be understood within ongoing state violence that is a legacy of slavery and colonization. And so this um, poster that, or uh, mural rather, that I'm showing you is in Berlin. Um, international protesters have linked his name to indigenous deaths in Australia, immigrants' rights in Brussels, Paris, Berlin, and London, um, and black children's expendability in Brazil. And very quickly, those protests turn to the visual production of art images, especially murals and also posters um, of those killed this summer, and to the toppling of the um, statues of Confederates and colonizers. Last year, I participated in Harrisonburg's Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Project, or the TRHT Project, funded by the um, W.K. Uh, Kellogg Foundation and the Virginia Humanities for the uh, Foundation, and led by activists um, Stephen Thomas and artist Susan Zerbreg. Um, Dr. Joanne Gavin and I were also part of the committee, and I believe um, Lauren Elaine, um, I'm not sure if she was also part of the committee, but I know you were at the uh, opening for the um, art exhibition. Uh, the Harrisonburg TRHT goal has been to raise questions about what truth, racial healing, and transformation are, and to organize students, faculty, and community members in retrieving and remembering local histories of African Americans in the Shenandoah Valley, thus changing the narrative. On this map of Harrisonburg, I'm showing you the contested complex of memories and memorials in our area, the African American community of Zenda, which I believe um, Dr. Gavin has uh, researched, uh, and the World War I Memorial on Main Street um, that uh, um, recently added African-American names, uh, and then the Confederate Turner Ashby Memorial in, in town and the Stonewall Jackson Inn. The TRHT um, project title and discourse gesture to the recent history of truth and reconciliation commissions in South Africa after the end of racial apartheid and in Latin America after an end of military regimes in order to apply those concepts to communities in the United States. 
So formed in the 1980s and 1990s, these commissions um, spent years conducting investigations into histories of human rights violations that occurred um, over decades and in the case of the apartheid, um, much of um, the 20th century. They formed museums dedicated to human rights issues and um, developed what is known um, as symbolic reparations, which means a kind of memorial or um, um, materialization dedicated to victims and survivors. In the United States, however, despite a growing international movement demanding truth, reconciliation, and reparations for African-American slavery and native genocide. The government has never apologized for these crimes. I think in, um, the, in Virginia, we got a profound regret um, and um, has only continued uh, and, and conducted only a single day of testimony um, last year on uh, Juneteenth, um, 2019, addressing how reparations might focus on housing, employment, and education um, issues. So if the goal, goal is truth, justice, and racial healing, the problem that those remedies seek to amend include cultures of violence, impunity, and historical amnesia. Uh, so this summer's toppling of Confederate statues recapitulates and expands the protests of the summer of 2017 that Dr. Adesanya referenced, um, motivated in part by the Charlottesville protests and by Freddie Gray's death in the custody of Baltimore police. Um, this summer, the iconoclasm has been even more serious and more pervasive in the U.S. and around the globe. Monuments of Confederate presidents and generals are coming down even in uh, the strongholds of Virginia and Kentucky. In Richmond and in Boston, uh, Columbus has been decapitated. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, the Spanish conquistador Juan de Oñate was defaced and now is up for removal. Red paint blindfolds those figures. In Antwerp, uh, King Leopold of Belgium, that's the bottom left on your screen. Um, he was responsible for the genocide of some 10 million Congolese people. Um, that statue was also defaced uh, and faces removals. And there's multiple King Leopolds, of course. Um, he has red paint dripping from his uh, hands and eyes. In Bristol, England, which um, Dr. Adesanya referenced, protesters, uh, and that's the image on the top left, to uh, protesters toppled the statue of slave trader Edward Colston and threw it into the harbor. Um, even the Turner Ashby Monument in Harrisonburg um, has been defaced uh, a little bit um, uh, before these events in February um, 2020. Um, it was erected in 1898 during Jim Crow and um, in 2017 uh, was listed on national, the National Register of Historic Places um, just uh, this just um, three summers ago. So how can art intervene in changing the narrative? This was the question that we discussed as part of the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Project. One set of responses has been the um, removing monuments, but also imagining alternative monuments. Um, it left as an entry for an exhibition and design competition in 2019 in, at the Valentine Gallery in Richmond, Virginia, which called for um, a re-envisioning of Monument Avenue in Richmond. This one, Erotically inverts the head of the horse uh, um, and the head of General Stonewall. 
And so, and then the center image um, is from Baltimore in 2017. And the anonymous artist created an impromptu replacement sculpture, probably of plaster, of an African-American mother carrying a child on her back and another in her belly, her fist raised in protest in confrontation with the Confederate. And... Um, other photos of the same sculpture um, show her with her back to the, uh, to the general. And it right is the British artist Banksy's solution to keeping the statue of the slave trader in Bristol while also celebrating the iconoclastic spirit of um, today's protesters. He would have the life-size sculptures of the protesters made to be in the process of toppling the slave trader statue. As part of the Harrisonburg TRHT project in November 2019, Susan Zerbrick's painting class performed an action on JMU's campus. And I have the um, link to the YouTube video, uh, but I'm not going to play it right now. Um, and so she, they performed an action on JMU's campus dedicated to Charlotte Harris, who was an African-American woman lynched near Harrisonburg on March 6, 1878. The performance involved six of the students wearing dark clothing and hooding, hoodies. They circled around a base illuminated with candles and imprinted with a female silhouette and the text, this is where we destroy history. Who is Charlotte Harris? So Stephen Thomas and Susan Zerberg are continuing to work towards bringing a memorial to commemorate her in Harrisonburg, um, and it would be in um, the town hall in downtown. So one last image. Um, another part of symbolic reparations can be the name changes of our streets and plazas, uh, cities, counties, schools, and other public sites. And I, for my um, Mind the best recent example of this is DC's renaming of the plaza facing the White House to Black Lives Matter Plaza. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Shanahan. Um, we have one final panelist this evening, and while she's last, she is certainly not least. Um, we are so delighted to have Dr. Joanne Gabin join us tonight. She is executive director of the Furious Flower Poetry Center. Thank you so much, Dr. Gabin, for being here with us. Thank you, Kara. Yeah, I, um, I'm sorry I missed the other presentations, but Maureen, I was so happy to get the tail end of yours. That's exciting work you're doing, really. And it's so good to see all of these um, wonderful faces, Adirante, Lauren, and I missed that amazing poem. I'm sure it was amazing that you did. So I want to just share very succinctly two poems, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing them. I just want to read them. You'll know right away why I've chosen um, them, but I will give just a little introduction. Uh, the first poem is by Tiamba Jess. He is a recent Pulitzer Prize winner for his volume, Olio. Uh, he was, fortunately, one of our presenters at the um, Collegiate Summit in uh, 2018. Uh, so, but I saw this poem and I, I saw, I got the poems from this great book called of Poetry and Protest from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin. And that says everything, doesn't it? 
So, um, but this poem is called Infernal. And I wanted to read this one because of all of the uprisings, all of the so-called riots, the protests, and all of the negative publicity around looting. And my whole point here is that uh, what's more egregious, the act that prompted the um, protests or the protests itself? And of course, that's an obvious question. The, the act is most egregious. But this is a poem that really responds to Tayyamba Jess's father and what he learned about a riot. Infernal. There is a riot I fit into, a place I fled called the Motor City. It owns a story old and forsaken as the furnaces of Packard plant. As creased as the palm of my hand, in a summer I was too young to remember, 1967. My father ran into the streets to claim a small part of my people's anger in his Kodak. A portrait of the flame that became our flag long enough to tell us there was no turning back, that we'd burn ourselves clean of all doubt. That's the proof I've witnessed. I've seen it up close and in headlines. A felony sentence spelling out the reasons my mother's house is now worth less than my sister's Honda. How my father's worthy raise is worth nothing at all. In the scheme of all of it, though, my kin came out lucky. We survived, mostly by fleeing the flames while sealing their heat in our minds the way a bank holds a mortgage, the way a father holds his son's hand while his city burns around him. I almost forgot to mention the canary in Detroit's proverbial coal mine who sang for my parents when they fled the inferno of the South. It's song sweaty sweet with promise. I'm singing myself right now. I'm singing the best way I know about the way I've run from one fire to another. I got a head full of song boiling away I carry a portrait of my father. When uh, Tayyaba Jess first read this poem at a Furious Flower conference, he could hardly finish it without having tears in his voice. And I hear those tears welling up in my voice as well. Because in this poem is succinctly etched a history of a people who have run from fire to fire. The whole great migration was about running from what was bad to something that was promised, something that was better. And uh, we can see people around the country wanting to physically run from all of this terrorism to run to something better, 
And so this infernal that um, Taya Majest talks about is like a capsule of what we know as uh, this hell that we're living in. I, I was telling, um, I think, Lauren about what I was feeling earlier uh, this week, and um, I feel terrorism fatigue. I'm so tired of all of the death and so tired of even wanting to hope that things will get better. And I'm also tired of trying to teach progressive white people what they should know. So um, I, I thought I'd just teach by reading to another poem. The other poem is by, this, this book is so wonderful because it gives the great faces of the people. Angela Jackson. I kind of grew up in the literary world of Angela Jackson's in Chicago. I was a part of the Obasi poets. And uh, she's written a poem called Fanny, of Fanny Lou Hamer. And I thought since I was coming towards the end of this presentation that we always do these things and we, we need to come up with what can we do to act. And one thing I think we can do that comes out of that first poem, Tiambas, is that we can break the silence. The history is there. All we have to do is read it. All we have to do is embrace it. And this Fannie Lou Hamer poem is about really voting. Uh, we remember that Fannie Lou Hamer in 1964 did a very brave thing by being the delegate from the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and went to the convention and stood there even though she was denied an opportunity to speak. And this woman who was a sharecropper went to so much to get people in Mississippi to vote. So one thing we can do is vote, and not just at the presidential level, but at the local level, at the uh, state level. And um, so this is Fanny, and it almost sounds like a song. Fanny sang in jailhouse cells. Don't you know her songs? Swung the bars high in the window, back and forth between snot hard tears and stars. Fanny Hamer sang about climbing Jacob's ladder, rung by rung, that cottony voice rose above smoke and robes and swamps, dust roads, lynch ropes and water hoses, dogs, badges, and mud-weary beaten bones and bullets. Miss Fanny sang about climbing Jacob's ladder, wrestling angels, climbing, swinging rung by rung from crying to shining, bringing one by one from crying to shining as far as the heart can see, as far as the back can carry. Fanny sang in jailhouse cells. Do you know her songs? Have you ever seen a queen spider dance? She seems to be kneeling, but is not. She is always getting up. Have you ever seen a queen spider dance? 
some of them have wings. So I want I want us to have wings and I want us to I want this protest to last. I want it to have meaning beyond next week and next month. I hope that it's finally a tipping point in this country that we're going to save our democracy that is on the precipice of becoming something else, something ugly and something horrible. So thank you for your time. I appreciate the invitation, Kara and Abe, to do this. Thank you so much, Dr. Gabin. Um, if there's any questions on Facebook, please feel free to post them in the comments and we'll have them over. I think as we're getting started, um, Dr. Gabin, you, I think are the perfect ending in terms of thinking about how do we actually make change and, and what is our role in, in political and decision-making processes. Anastasia, I wonder if I can bring you back in um, as a student. Um, what are your hopes and what, do you, what are your ideas um, for, for seeing change, whether that's here on campus um, and, and even more broadly in, in our community and, and in our society? Hmm. Um, that's a really loaded question, but I think um, I think the first, well, I can give an example. So um, I went to, I had the pleasure of going to New Orleans this, um, this spring break before the pandemic started. And we went to a, um, we, we got to clean up this event that was made for the three women who basically had the same story as Ruby Bridges. Um, that were children who were on the front lines fighting um, racism. They were the first three um, girls to integrate um, in the um, in Louis in Louisiana to desegregate the schools. And um, one of the speakers talked a lot about we must continue to organize. And I think um, a lot of the time, you know, we talk about fatigue. We talk about how we can be so tireless. Um, this experience of fighting for justice and fighting for change. But I think despite, you know, our fatigue, despite, you know, feeling tired or whatever, we must push forward and um, continue to organize and continue to fight for what we believe in, whether that's on a small scale on campus or whether that's going out to, you know, large scale protests. And any effort is effort. Any, any, all the petitions that are being signed and the protesting that's going on, the donations, the boycotting, everyone can contribute to this movement. Every single person can contribute. It doesn't matter how you do it. There are so many ways to be a part of it. And I think, you know, as a student or you're just as someone who doesn't always feel like I have a huge platform, you wonder like, what can I do? I know that was something that I was always troubled with when it came to activism was I have all these ideas. I know what I believe in. I know what I, I, you know, disagree with, but how do I put it in action when I do? But this movement has really inspired me to know that there are so many options. There's so many ways to get involved. There are so many ways to ignite change. And I think that that's something that I wanted to remind people of is that um, a small step is really can make a lot of change. So find those avenues, find those different ways that you can contribute there. It, it's not even matter if or small, they're all equal. Um, so yeah, so that's my idea behind that. Hearing um, Dr. Gavin emphasize voting and Anastasia talking about so many ways to get involved is actually 
um, exciting. We often talk about here at the Madison Center that voting is a necessary and important front door to deeper engagement, but we also need to be asking, what can we do today to address the public issues that we care about? Um, Adaranki, I was struck by your presentation. I want to thank you so much for sharing it. You spoke about um, the power of monuments and statues, perhaps even being reminders of, of people in our history that have oppressed those, the, the people of those walking by them. Um, that's very powerful. I wonder if you can speak to monuments and statues that have been unifying um, um, symbols for people where, where, where the arts can be used in a way. And Dr. Shanahan, I'd be curious your thought on this too, about the ways in which the arts can unify people around specific um, public issues and ideas. I think I will speak broadly, you know, to ideas, you know, the kind of things generally that um, the arts um, um, address. Uh, nationalism, um, cultural um, 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 ideas and things like that. Those, those are things that uh, people can continue to build upon. Um, ideas that motivate uh, people and the collective and also help um, different generations of people, you know, to, to have uh, a claim in it, not uh, exclusionary or alienating, you know, context uh, that we encounter. I cannot um, sort of off, off the uh, top of my head, you know, aside some examples now, but I want to go back to, to a point that I think is important. A lot of things have been generated right now that we should focus our attention on. It's not the, the unifying um, elements per se that we should focus on because really um, it is those um, elements that traumatize people that should actually be addressed. So um, monuments, you know, statues, you know, works, uh, and then we should, you know, revisit history and sort of, you know, correct the various wrongs. I was very, very uh, fascinated, you know, by the work of British, you know, artists, you know, who developed uh, a play, The Whip. I don't know if anybody has, um, has seen, I've, I've gone to sort of, you know, take a preview of, of The Whip. The Whip, you know, addresses, you know, um, an oversight um, of um, centuries of uh, injustice. Because, you know, slave owners, you know, were persuaded, you know, to give up their slaves, you know, but it was presented as, as if, okay, they were there. They were magnanimous, you know, to give up the slaves, you know, but they paid some money. But they now found out later, you know, as the film, you know, plays out, they found out later that even current generation of, you know, a citizen in the, in the UK were paying for that, you know, um, uh, Slave Abolition Act. We're still paying, you know, the slave owners up to 2015. That is astounding. That is, you know, really egregious for that to you know, uh, be, be extended, you know, up to this century. It is crazy, super crazy. And there are so many things, you know, that people still continue to, to um, um, need to critically face uh, And people promote the idea of heritage. You know, people forget, you know, certain aspects. Uh, the aspects, you know, which they, unless you are an art historian or somebody who study images, you know, deeply and things like that, that monuments are elevating valorizing forms. They validate what you embody and they perpetuate your ideas. But 
for, for the, the people who are, represent, who are represented in those monuments, you know, carry forward the ideas that we embody. But for their descendants, it's like busting rights for them. It's busting rights for them. Oh, my ancestor is this and all that. So as you are perpetrating, you know, the, um, um, the, the universe of the oppressor, you're also perpetuating the trauma of the oppressed. So it's, it's, they cannot be separated. So unless that is addressed, then people, you know, would, would not, you know, feel the need to, you know, there's this notion that, um, okay, well, um, let's unify, let's unite together, let's, you know, embrace one another. But then you are paranoid. You are afraid. You are afraid. You are not sure. Safe grounds. And even some people believe that they are actually not working on state grounds. And I want to bring um, into the discussion the, the work of um, one of the uh, contemporary Afri new African diaspora artists you know, that I love so much, Wangechi Mutu. She just you know, did a series of monuments um, in 2019. Um, it's at the Met, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's titled The New Ones with Free Us. You know, she has this aspirational you know, idea about it, you know, four um, um, statues of women, you know, seated and set in niches, you know, and then she had this, uh, she, 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 the, the idea which she, you know, shared about them is that, you know, they are liberated chariotics, you know, that women are sometimes act as pillars in architecture, you know, that, you know, they, they'll be supportive, you know, elements, but they'll also be elevating elements, you know, that people can look forward to. But, you know, in that, she also recognizes, you know, the fact that there is fear. There's this notion of, you know, I'm not enough. I'm not strong enough, you know. So there's something that must be projected, you know, to show, to validate that I actually have a place, you know, in this social spectrum. I actually need to be included. I actually need to be validated. You know, she's using her art, you know, to validate, you know, that notion. That might be a unifying uh, work if people embrace it. But how many people will look at those images the way I, an African, will look at it, or the way you and Gabin, an African American, would look at it? It's sat there, right, right there at the net. But how many people will embrace it the way they will go and oh, and uh, sort of you know uh, be wowed by images you know from the Western world, from the Greek world, from the Roman world, and all that? But those images are there. There are pointers, you know, to the fact that you can begin to embrace them, you can begin to talk about them, you can begin to include them in the content that you teach. Perhaps we should also think about, you know, doing, you know, maybe it's institutions, you know, around the U.S. and around the world who devote a session, you know, and have all students actually take a course on art, race, trauma, and contemporary politics. Devote a session that people should actually take, and you, there are so many rich contents that have been generated already, so many rich contents that we can pull from in film, in visual arts, in um, 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 performance, just name it. Pull together all those you know, rich contents and use it to teach a course and make everybody, every student, if you are committed, take it, take the course, and then let's have the conversation from there. Get to learn, get to know more about, you know, the other people. That's how to go. If you're looking for something unifying, let's create, 
you know, whatever is existing before, perhaps it's not unifying enough. Let's create, you know, from this crisis, from this protest, let's create that content that people can embrace and use to teach our students. And then we can actually catch the next generation to be more empathetic, to be more caring, and to actually invest their time, their labor, their interest in advancing a new future for us. That's the way to go. Anaroka, I want to jump in because I want to also say literary monument, right? I've been looking at all of this discussion of God with the wind, but what will we do with it in this moment? <laughs> you know, I, I think that that we we valorize, you use that term valorize, and there's so much valorization of problematic language that stands. And, you know, you're a, a, an artist. Um, I'm a writer and write, write in, in the places that you look and you read yourself inscribed in certain ways, right? Um, what do we, how do we also think about literary monuments? Where are the texts that are building subconsciously and internally these white supremacist notions, these anti-Black notions? Mm -hmm. How do we uproot them from our syllabus, um, from our syllabi, from our, um, from our culture? And, you know, or if we love our contextualization, <laughs> right, how, what else do we teach to, to give uh, another, another side, another story, a counter story um, to, the, to those texts? And um, how do we maybe place them in a context of white supremacy as opposed to great literature, <laughs> right? Um, I think like that's also critical. Like the monuments aren't only the stone and you know brass that are populating our cities. We have lots and lots of monuments. I would argue our police force is a social infrastructural monument that we need to take down and recast. You know, and so the idea of what are the institutions, what are the structures, what are the texts, what are the films, what are the the ideas that we are holding sacred, that we are valorizing that even as we valorize them, do such damaging, dehumanizing work mm -hmm. on the interiority, if we're thinking about art and its purposes and its power of not just the oppressors, because they too, as Walden would say, are being harmed and dehumanized in their dehumanization of others, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, this, is, this is not, a, this isn't fixing black folks, y'all. This is healing everyone. And that unification that you're calling for, Eivor, or talking about begins with, let's take out the cancers. Let's remove the monuments to hate in all of their forms because they are toxic for us all. Mm -hmm. And they are damaging us all. And their removal will be painful. No surgery is pain-free. But what does our public body look like without some of that poison? Yeah. And we, we just do something. Just do it. We've but. got about three minutes left. I, I would love if um, Dr. Shanahan or Dr. Barry would like to, to weigh in on this conversation. I'll defer to Dr. Barry, but um, <laughs> if, if he has uh, any comments, since we only have a short bit of time. Um, I would just say that... Uh, I agree totally with uh, everything we're talking about. Like, um, I think you had mentioned um, voting is uh, 
sort of the entry point for further engagement. And that's definitely true. I think um, as an artist and we think about, and you also mentioned, what can we do today, right? What can I do um, until November or until the next local election? Um, I think as an artist, um, sometimes um, being able to pierce through to someone's soul um, in a way through art that you couldn't through uh, speaking um, is an entryway. Maybe that might be for uh, a young artist who hears you, who's going to be the next person to be to decide that legislation. Um, maybe that's going to be for someone who hasn't heard voices in any other forum, but somehow finds themselves oddly touched by someone different than them. Um, and uh, I, I want to make sure to say that uh, that doesn't mean you can abdicate one uh, avenue for the other. It means we need both. And as an artist, uh, we have to be, be able to think and um, act in both ways. I would like to just add one little thing here. Um, we as a faculty on this campus, I need to break the silences. I found the most amazing detrimental tool that has been used on this campus to further systematic or systemic racism is silence. And if we just took it as a part of our own code that we were going to speak up whenever we see something that is not right, Whenever, you know, sometimes uh, we are so comfortable in our own advantages, our own privilege, that we don't want to see. And so I, I just say, please, just break the silences. And I love the idea of um, seeing the, the monuments that are destructive in all the places, whether they're visual or literary. But when you go into your department meetings, when you know something is being said that's not right, break the silence and speak up. I have done that for the last 35 years in the English department. I think they don't want to see me coming because I will do it consistently. I, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. When I see something that is not right, I'm going to say it. So just folks, I'm glad I, I had the opportunity to be a part of this conversation. Now I'm gonna go back to the book club where I broke away from that book club to come here. I thank you all for, for being here. Thank you, Abe. Thank you, Kara. It's so good to see you again. Thank you, Dr. Gavin. <laughs> what a wonderful message. I, I, I'm humbled and honored to be working with all of you um, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for those on Facebook Live. This is recorded. We will send the YouTube link to our panelists to send it out to their networks. Next Wednesday, Athletics and Social Justice. I think we should call it a night. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, our communications specialist at JMU Civic and a graduate of the School of Media Arts and Design with a concentration in journalism. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, helps us with syndication. Be sure to follow us on social media. 
You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about JMU Civic at jmu.edu slash civic. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 